and welcome to Always Take Notes. A message from our sponsor, Curtis Brown Creative. If one of your resolutions is to make 2022 the year you start taking your writing seriously, you'll be excited to hear that our sponsors this week are Curtis Brown Creative, the renowned writing school affiliated to the major literary agency. Since launching in 2011, over 150 of their students have gone on to get major book deals, including best-selling authors Jesse Burton, Jane Harper and Claire Pooley. CBC offers a wide range of online writing courses led by acclaimed authors, designed to help you no matter what your current skill level is. For people at the start of their writing journey, they have a four-week Creative Writing for Beginners course led by author and founder of CBC, Anna Davis. The course will teach you to unleash the potential of your imagination. You'll gain the confidence to put pen to paper and get to work on a story of your own creation. Curtis Brown Creative have provided an exclusive discount for Always Take Notes listeners. You can use the code ATN20 for £20 off the full price of Creative Writing for Beginners or any of their other four or six week online writing courses. Visit www.curtisbrowncreative.co.uk to find out more. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Rachel and I spoke with the novelist Elif Shafak. We spoke to Elif about how writing in different languages affects her craft, about the bastard of Istanbul and her trial in 2006, and about why heavy metal is the perfect music to write to. As you'll hear, we had a few technical issues while recording this, but it's still a fantastic episode and we hope you enjoy it. Hi Elif, welcome to Always Take Notes and really good to have you on the show. I wanted to start with uh, The Island of Missing Trees with your new novel. And why was it that you decided you wanted to write about the history of Cyprus? Oh, thank, thank you so much. I think I've been wanting to write about Cyprus for a very, very long time. Um, but it's not an easy story to tell. So the truth is I could never dare. I've been thinking about it, maybe taking little notes, keeping them to myself, researching. But that's about it. Uh, the reason why I couldn't there is because it's a very complicated story. There's no doubt this is a beautiful island with beautiful people, you know, north and south. But at the same time, it's a place where the past is not a bygone affair. And I think the past is very much alive and breathing within this moment. It's a place where there are lots of untold stories and hurts and grief, a lot of accumulated grief or pain or inherited pain. So how do you tell the story of an, of an island or a land that has experienced partition, ethnic violence, division, without yourself falling into the trap of nationalism, without yourself repeating those codes of tribalism or division? I didn't know how to approach the story. Only when I found the fig tree, only then I found an opening, a gate into the story, and then I could start writing. And how did you find the the voice appropriate for a fig tree as a narrator? You know, partly, of course, it was um, maybe triggered or encouraged by this entire lockdown pandemic period that we have gone through. But I have been thinking about eco-consciousness, ecological awareness, and how to reflect that in the art of storytelling for a while, like many authors, I believe, because we're living at a time of climate emergency and it does shape our every moment. This is not happening in 100 years or 200 years. It is happening right now. But also with the pandemic, I think like many people, 
I felt the need to reconnect with earth, with trees, you know, even the things that we take for granted, like sitting under a tree and reading a book, the joy of that, you know, you, you, you learn to appreciate and you start to perhaps reorder your values, your priorities in life. I'm sure all of that has very much affected the process, but I have been reading about nature, ecology, particularly eco-consciousness, and especially trees and fig trees for, for quite some time now. And, and, and the more I read, the more I'm fascinated by them. I think trees are remarkable and we do have a lot to learn from them. Could you tell us a bit about your process for creating characters more generally? Do they tend to appear fully formed in your head or do you work them out in advance or do they develop on the go? What is your, what's your process for that? Yeah, I think there are two main ways of writing a novel. One of them is a bit like engineering, perhaps a bit more mathematical, perhaps a bit more cerebral, you know, mostly in the brain, in which the author wants to know what's going to happen five chapters later, or how the story is going to end, or what the characters are going to do. I respect this path, but it is not my path. I like the second path in which more than reason and logic and brain, intuition is your guide. So I do write with intuition, but that doesn't mean you don't put any, you know, mind work into it. So what I'm trying to say is my main guide is my heart, is the emotional bonds that I have. But other than that, I, I, I want to let the, the characters guide me and the story lead the way. I, want, I, I like it when the story surprises me. I like to be a little bit drunk when I'm writing, you know, I like not knowing what's going to happen in the next chapter. But before I can get into that stage, I do a lot of research, reading, thinking. So there's a lot of cerebral work that goes into that process of getting ready. But once I'm ready to write, it's just intuition, heart, emotion and, and just following the flow. You, you subscribe to the Ernest Hemingway, write drunk, edit sober sort of epithet. Um, you mentioned your research process and at the end of, um, end of your novel, you mentioned quite a lengthy bibliography. What's your sort of process there? Did you visit Cyprus at any point while you were writing it? Um, not, not in the year of the, you know, the, throughout the pandemic, but before, yes. And, and I have always been fascinated by the island. You know, I feel very connected um, but also in Turkey, I grew up with lots of stories. I mean, in our family, in the environment that I grew up in, this was a very much alive issue, if I may put it this way. Um, but over the years, I mean, particularly in London, but also in different cities, I had the pleasure of meeting lots of Cypriots, lots of islanders, both Greek Cypriots and Turkish Cypriots, who have shared many stories with me so I had a chance to also observe immigrant families and in the heart of at the heart of the book there is a there is an immigrant family uh, they have moved from Cyprus to the UK so that experience of displacement being uprooted rerouted almost deracinated that was also very important for me could we roll back now to the beginnings of your interest in writing? Is it right that when you were eight years old, your mother gave you a turquoise notebook because you were constantly speaking with imaginary creatures? Yeah, I think, I mean, in hindsight, I think she was slightly, if not slightly, perhaps more uh, worried about maybe my mental health. I was, um, I was an introvert, clearly, but I would chat with invisible creatures around me all the time. Uh, I had a very 
wild imagination like many children. But I need to tell you that I was a single child. I was an only child raised by a single working mom. And she was away, you know, most of the time during the day. And my grandmother took care of me until the age I was 10 years old. I was born in France, uh, my parents got separated, my father stayed in France and my mother brought me to Turkey. This was a very conservative, very patriarchal neighborhood. Um, so from an early age onwards, I was raised by a grandmother who was a bit of an oral storyteller. And I think all of these things have somehow left an impact on me. What were some of the early um, childhood writing experiments about, as well as imaginary creatures? You know, my grandmother's house was not a house with a huge library or anything. There were a limited number of books. Uh, unlike the first house in Strasbourg in France, which was full of books, um, this was a house, you know, inhabited mostly by leftist students, immigrants, you know, with big ideas, talking about revolution, smoking gloires, lots of tobacco in the air. That house was full of books, but my grandmother's house it would have traditional, um, maybe Muslim uh, folk, you know, culture, um, that type of books and limited number of books. And like the story of Leila and Mejnun, like the story of, you know, very traditional Middle Eastern stories. And I think what that did to me was, first of all, I longed to read more books, but because there was a limited number of books in that house, I would change the endings of the books. You know, so I would read them again, and I would change their endings. Later on, um, my mother became a diplomat after I was 11 years old, and she and I traveled quite a bit. That, of course, opened up a whole new literature in front of my eyes. So I started reading in Spanish and in English as well. But I, when I look back, I realize there are different traditions of storytelling that somehow shaped me, both written culture, but also oral culture, both the Western canon of the novel, which I like and love a lot, but at the same time more perhaps Middle Eastern or Eastern Anatolian ways of storytelling. I, I respect them too. And I would love my work to bridge these seemingly different worlds. And when did you first get a desire to write professionally? Um, and how did you make your first steps in, in that direction? I started writing fiction at a very early age. I mean, you know, from eight years onwards, but that's not because I wanted to become a writer. I didn't know such a thing was possible. I had no idea you could dedicate your life to, to books, um, that this could be, not because it's not a job we're talking about. It shapes your entire life, you know, day and night. Um, and I didn't know such a thing was possible. But I think my need for books was so deep, so existential, mostly because, as I said, life was very boring and I thought Storyland was much more interesting, much more colourful, and I wanted to spend more time in that world. The desire to become an author came to me in my early 20s, um, ever since I had my first novel published at a relatively young age in Turkey. I knew this was what I wanted to do. But even before that, even deeper, was the need for books. You know, I, I realized that I have to become a reader. And, and that's the main thing, isn't it? I think as writers, we need to be readers first and foremost. Could you tell us a little bit about the process then for that first book, Pinhan? Um, apologies if I've mangled the pronunciation of that. Um, it went, out, went on to win prizes in Turkey, but did you write the whole manuscript and then send it off to an agent and to a publisher? How did it work? Yes, and it's 
quite interesting i realize only in hindsight because at the time i had no clue you know i had no experience in the publishing world so i wrote this novel and i sent it to one of the leading publishing houses in turkey and about a month later i received a, an amazing phone call from a very well known editor and we had a long chat which then you realize actually how lucky you are um but at the time because everything is so new and you don't know how difficult it can be to get published so in a way you just do it without thinking but what i can tell you about this book is it surprised many people in turkey because the language that it uses i mean i i um my turkish anyone who reads my work in turkish I, i'm i'm hoping they would agree with me it's quite rich in the sense that i use old words as well as new words and the reason why this might be important is because in turkey we have changed our language over the years as you know this was a multi-ethnic multilingual empire the ottoman empire so the language and and the script as well right i mean the script changed correct yes but um I'm especially focusing on the vocabulary. So the vocabulary, of course, the syntax was Turkish, but there was also there were also lots of words coming from Arabic and Persian, some words from Ladino, from Armenian, from Greek, from Kurdish. So when you Turkify the language, when you take out words, actually, you lose almost half the dictionary. And for a progressive or a modern, whatever you call it, young person to insist in, on using old words as well as new words was a little bit unusual. Could you tell us about the influence of Virginia Woolf on you, and in particular Orlando? When did you encounter uh, that book, and and what did it what did it speak to you about? It was, you know, an eye-opening experience. I mean, there are some novels that I have never forgotten. You know, when where was I when I first read it? um because it's almost like a physical experience when i first read orlando and i'm not claiming that i understood the book fully i was very young i was in high school about to finish but something clicked something told me that i didn't know you could write novels like that i couldn't know you could be so fluid and maybe i didn't have the word for it but it spoke to me it resonated with me very very deeply the fact that the writer dares to travel across centuries across geographies regions but also gender boundaries you know that kind of fluid world and 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 the fact that you can do that in a novel that keep the canvas so big and the movement so free i think i would associate orlando with freedom so that's by the time i finished that first reading that's what stayed with me you know i felt free and i longed for that kind of freedom And how did your early novels coexist with your work as an academic? Um academia was um I I think it's you know I stayed in academia for a long time for many years doing mostly multidisciplinary interdisciplinary work so my background is in international relations but then I moved to gender studies gender and women's studies I was very interested in the theories of feminism and then I moved to political science but mostly like political philosophy Um that said I I've taught classes in women's studies in cultural studies comparative literature so I've I've always been interested in learning from different disciplines and how you, they can contribute to each other I don't like compartmentalization I don't like it when people you know try to erect walls around 
knowledge or around different disciplines. Of course, when I say this, I'm aware that the language of academia can be quite different. You know, when you write a paper, it's very different than the language found in fiction. But the way I see it, knowledge is a circle. Everything is interconnected. So I'm interested in knowledge. I'm interested in learning. But at the end of the day, it, fiction is where my heart beats. So all of that knowledge, I would like it to flow towards fiction, like rivers flowing towards the same sea. Um, but the magnet, the, the real center for me is the art of storytelling. Hello, it's Artemis, the producer of Always Take Notes. I hope you're enjoying Simon and Rachel's conversation with the brilliant LF Shafak. You're about to hear the first of a new segment we're trying out on the podcast. In this segment, you'll hear previous guests of the show answer one of three questions. What's a piece of advice you wish you'd had at the start of your career? When is a time you failed? And what is the most important trait someone in your profession can have? Their answers weren't included in the main interviews that Simon and Rachel did with them, so we're hoping that they'll give you some fresh insight into the careers of some of the fascinating guests that we've had on. To launch this new segment, here's the poet, Holly McNish, on a piece of advice she wished she'd had at the start of her career. One piece of advice that I wish I had had at the beginning of my career is not to just do whatever anybody asks you to do. I did a lot of that and a lot of feeling guilty about asking for money for gigs and a lot of free work and a lot of actually losing money paying for trains to get to gigs that people offered me like a cup of tea to do that I didn't need to do, but I genuinely just did because I felt guilty saying no. So it would be to really think before you say yes to everything and try to work out the balance of career development opportunities and working for free or just doing what people want or expect of you. That was Holly McNish. Now back to Simon and Rachel's conversation with Elif Shafak. Could you tell us about your decision to start writing in English, how you how you made that and how it went about. I've, I've got a quote here that says, um, I still find it easier to express melancholy and longing in Turkish, but humour is definitely easier in English. We don't have a word for irony in Turkish. So how did you how did you take the plunge and what was your experience of, of shifting to a different language? Yes, I think take the plunge is um, how I would describe it too. I started writing in English first about 15 years ago now. So my earlier novels were all written in Turkish first, and then they were translated. To reverse that process was not a very rational decision. Again, it was more like an animal instinct, I would say, or, you know, definitely irrational, because it's, it's a difficult thing to do. As you can hear in my, you know, voice and the way I speak, I am an immigrant, you know, English is not my native language. I did not grow up in a bilingual house. So for me, this is an acquired language. And as an immigrant, I do know that there will always be a gap between my mind and my tongue. The mind always runs faster and the tongue is trying to catch up. That gap can be quite frustrating, actually, you know. But if we learn not to be frustrated by that, it can also be 
inspiring or it can be it can push you you know to pay more attention to words concepts idioms slang maybe the things that sometimes native speakers take for granted you learn not, not to take anything for granted when you're an outsider but basically i think the reason now i can say this the reason why i started writing in english was probably because i felt suffocated and i needed another zone of freedom or of another zone of existence english gave me that additional space that said i'm very attached to the turkish language i i love my mother tongue you know in turkey especially nationalists got very upset and they always accuse me of you know abandoning my mother tongue but that's the nationalist mentality for them everything is either or you know you're either one of us or you one of them that is not how i see the world i think it is possible to dream in more than one language there are people who you know commute between languages in the age of migrations movements displacements and if you can dream in more than one language you can write fiction in more than one language as well so it's not abandoning anything my connection with the turkish language is very emotional my connection with the english language is more cerebral and i think i i feel like i need both you know and am i right in thinking that when your books are translated back into turkish or translated into turkish in fact you someone else does the translation but you kind of look over it and make corrections that is true and you know sometimes people ask why don't you translate them yourself i really can't do that i think it's an an amazing talent literary translation i do not have that talent and i have a lot of respect for translators really there are some unsung heroes that make the publishing world you know keep going definitely translators definitely booksellers and librarians you know people who put so much effort into spreading the love of books the love of literature storytelling but whose names don't get enough credit and definitely i would call, call translators among them so that's the first reason why i don't do it because i can't do it myself but also because i would change it probably so much so when a professional translator finishes the translation uh, i i they give me the framework they give me you know the entire manuscript within those limits i can play with the words as i said i can use some old words or you know the rhythm i like inverted sentences a lot in in turkish in particular so i can do a little bit of play with with that with the structure of the sentences um but the translation is yeah not 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 my talent i just wondered on the language point had you ever experimented in other languages had you did you learn french as a child then if you were growing up in france i i do not speak uh french because i i was very little when i left france but i do understand i do understand very you know um basic french that's about it i do speak spanish spanish actually was my second language english was okay. my third um but english stayed with me very vividly it never abandoned me and i kept writing and reading in this language also you know writing short stories but keeping it to myself until i decided to completely you know write every novel in english i always kept it to myself but you learned english as an adult not as a child or um i was 11 years old yeah okay. and and in spain i i started learning in, in english in spain in madrid have you ever written anything in spanish no no that's the thing and i love the spanish language it's such a beautiful language i love speaking spanish and hearing people speak spanish but i've never written anything in spanish which is interesting you know 
Um, so I really, I think from the very beginning, something about the English language, it, it spoke to me. Now, fast forward, I, I do appreciate the diversity that exists within the English language so much. You know, when, you, when, you, when I hear you speak, you use words like chutzpah, or you use words like kismet, and nobody says, wait a minute, that's a Jewish word, the first one, and the second one is an Arabic word. They're not English, English, let's take them out, you know, whatever that means. But this is the thing that I, I would hear uh, in terms of taking words out of Turkish language. So all I'm trying to say is all words are welcome uh, and they're part of the language. It's organic flow. Uh, and I like that. I, I really cherish that diversity. Could you tell us about the publication of The Bastard of Istanbul and in 2006 and then the, the series of events that followed that? So you were accused of insulting Turkishness, is that right? Yes, I was accused of insulting Turkishness because we have an article in the Turkish Constitution, Article 301, um, which protects Turkishness against insults, but nobody knows what that means. And because it's so vague, it's open to all kinds of misinterpretation. So when the novel was published, The Bastard of Istanbul tells the story of a Turkish family and an Armenian-American family, generations of women. Um, and it is a book that talks about memory and amnesia, and it talks about the Armenian genocide, which is a very big taboo in Turkey to this day. When the book was published, I had an amazing, heartwarming response from the readers. But at the same time, um, from the authorities, it, it was a completely different story. So I was put on trial under Article 301, which was quite unexpected because that same article has been used against historians, against journalists, against non-fiction writers, but never before against a fiction writer. So it was quite surreal in the sense that sentences from the book were plucked, taken out of the book and used as evidence in the courtroom which means that my Turkish lawyer had to defend my, the words of my Armenian fictional right, uh, characters in the courtroom. And that went on for about a year. There were groups on the streets, you know, ultra-nationalist, nationalist groups spitting at my pictures, burning EU flags. It was quite unnerving that, that year. Um, and after a, a year of trial, I was acquitted. Yeah, that was sort of my question of, of what that experience was like for you emotionally and financially was it was incredibly costly um emotionally i think i, I would say it, it was unnerving you know um also because i was pregnant at the time and the way it happened the day before i was acquitted and the next day i gave birth so the entire year has uh, was a very unusual year um, but even after that you know i had to have a bodyguard for a year and a half for writing a work of fiction. So, of course, at the time you don't realize how it affects you, but over the years, um, definitely, it, 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 you know, I found it very unsettling, the whole experience. But that said, when I write fiction, when I'm in the middle of a novel, I really try to forget this so-called real world, and I try to remain in my imaginary world as best as I can, as much as I can, because if you start worrying about what people are going to say, you really can't write, you know. What is the the reception of your work in Turkey today, do you think? Is it right that in, in 2019, a, a Turkish prosecutor again examined your novels, so The Gays and Three Daughters of Eve? How, how does that, your, your interaction with the government work now? 
You know, of course, um, Turkey is is a very complex country. It's incredibly complicated. And over the years, it has been going backwards, at first gradually, but then with a bewildering speed. And I think it declined more and more into nationalism, but also fundamentalism, religious fundamentalism, also populist authoritarianism, you know, the loss of democracy, in my opinion, went hand in hand with the rise in sexism, homophobia and misogyny. I don't think these things are coincidental, you know, they feed each other. So all I'm trying to say is, of course, many people recognize that it is difficult to write about political issues in Turkey, but sometimes people don't realize that it can be equally challenging to write about sexuality, to question gender norms, you know, gender codes. That too can be a challenge for a writer. And in 2019, my... um, Yeah, books have been, you know, police officers came to my Turkish publishing house and they collected some of my books alongside the books by a feminist author called Duygu Asena. Uh, She was a very well-known, iconic feminist writer in Turkey whose work I respect a lot. Her books have been taken as well to the prosecutor's office, um, even though she's dead, right, you know. Um, so all I'm trying to say is it's quite surreal, you know, this whole thing. And they have, yeah, they have launched an investigation to see if there was any crime of obscenity in it. Given the popularity of your of your work amongst Turkish readers, presumably this sort of interference from the government has not deterred Turkish publishing houses from taking on your work and publishing it there. It's... Um... It's, again, I would say it's it's complicated because it has affected the publishing industry, you know, the loss of democracy. So I don't, I don't want to personalize everything because in general, I think Turkey is, can be difficult for anyone who deals with words. If you're a writer, a poet, a journalist, life is not easy. I think, you know, being a Turkish novelist is not easy, but being a maybe Turkish women novels can be additionally hard because there's an extra layer of sexism that you have to deal with. But but also, for instance, the life of a cartoonist is not easy in Turkey at all. I think doing humor, I have so much respect for humor, particularly compassionate humor. I think humor is so healthy and it's such an essential part of democracy to be able to make fun of people in power you know, the, the humour allowed in public spaces, that's one of the first things that gets lost when democracy is shattered. And you've referred to Turkey's collective amnesia in interviews before, um, and you've talked about writers who bear witness to sciences and to the silence. Do you feel a responsibility as a novelist to, to redress that and to bear witness to those silences? I think memory is a responsibility, you know, not in order to get stuck in the past or revive old animosities, of course not, but to learn from the past, to understand and to be able to talk about the past in a calm and nuanced way so that we can build a better future together. I do believe in that. Um, But also, I think personally, I, I, I also believe that stories, of course, as as storytellers, we are drawn to stories, we love stories, but I, I think we're equally drawn to silences. I mean, I know that I am. So maybe I can tell you that in my writing, there's a desire to give m- more voice to people who have been pushed to the periphery, the margins, anyone who feels marginalized, disempowered for any reason. 
I want to understand their story and I want to bring the periphery to the center, try to make the invisible a little bit more visible, maybe try to make the unheard a bit more heard. And I think in that sense, literature does swim against the current, you know, does, does try to rehumanize people who have been dehumanized. To, to me, that's important. And I also think if you happen to come from a wounded democracy like Turkey, if you happen to be a novelist from such a place, you don't have the luxury of being apolitical. You know, you can't say, I only want to write about or talk about my fiction and, and about nothing else when so much is happening outside the window. I think many minority authors in the Western world also feel this urgency to speak up about racism, you know, hate, hate speech, um, hate crimes. So there are these core issues, fundamental issues that you, you feel the need to speak about. Um, on the other hand, I, I need to tell you that I am a feminist and, you know, as you know, one of the many wonderful things that feminism opened up as a debate is about what what is politics? Is it only what political parties and politicians do? Is it something more broad and complex and subtle? So wherever there is inequality, wherever there is power relationship, there is politics and the personal is also political. So you might be writing about marriage and gender and sexual or whatever, that too can be actually quite political. And how do you um, avoid making those themes come through in a sort of didactic manner? How do you keep that? How do you avoid a novel turning into a sort of lecture? I really think this is an important question. And the way I see it, I make a distinction between asking questions and trying to give answers. I don't think it's the writer's job to answer or to offer their answers. Actually, I don't like that. I don't like it at all when writers try to teach something or preach something. Again, I come from a country in which there is a solid tradition of father novelists. You know, the novel came to Turkey, late Ottoman era, from continental Europe mostly. And we have this a very long and solid tradition of novelists who saw themselves as the fathers of their readers and try to teach their readers something. I've never felt close to that tradition. You know, I don't know the answers myself. So what I believe in is the questions, the freedom to ask the questions, including difficult questions about difficult issues. And I think in a novel, that's why I love that large canvas so much, you can hear a plurality, a multiplicity of voices and opinions and put yourself in the shoes of another person, acquire a cognitive flexibility that is constantly denied to us in our daily lives, you know, and, and be an intellectual nomads, you know. So I love that diversity of opinions that a novel can nurture. And at the end, you have to leave the answers to the reader because every reader will come up with their own answers. And I have to respect that. No two people read the same book in the same way. I have met, you know, couples who have been married for 45 years. They read the same book. They don't read it in the same way. Best friends. One of them loves the book. The other one, not so much. Why? Because every reader brings their own gaze, their own story into the story. And I think that's a beautiful thing. So I am just following the questions, but not trying to dictate any answers. And I don't like that. A message from our sponsor, Writing Magazine. Alongside their monthly magazine, 
writing magazine hosts creative writing courses that offer aspiring and published writers something very special. Have you always wanted to improve your writing or break into a new genre? They can tailor their creative writing courses to suit your experience and ambitions. All of their tutors are successful published writers, trained to bring out the best in your writing abilities and help you succeed in your chosen genre. Your personal tutor will build on your existing knowledge and help you to develop your writing through valuable one-to-one feedback and advice in constructive critiques. Writing Magazine are offering our podcast listeners 20% off any of their courses throughout the whole of December and January. To claim your discount, simply email writingcourses at warnersgroup.co.uk with the code PODCAST20 and the course you'd like to enrol on. For full course details, visit their website www.writers-online.co.uk forward slash writing hyphen courses. Um, could we talk now about 10 minutes, 38 seconds in this strange world, which you published in 2019 to great acclaim, told from the perspective of Layla, a murdered sex worker. How did you get the idea for that story? You know, there were two things that started the entire novel. Um, the one comes from neuroscience. I became very interested in these studies that show after the moment of death, after the human heart has stopped beating, the brain can remain active for another few minutes, sometimes up to 10 minutes. And that to me was quite interesting and, you know, an amazing puzzle. What happens inside the human mind in that limited amount of time? And if it is true that the dead remember, uh, and if it is true that the part of our brain that is in touch with long-term memory is the last bit to shut down, then what do the dead remember? You know, the good things or the bad things? In a way that gave me the structure of the entire novel. but also, if I may add this very quickly, there's an actual place in Istanbul, there's an actual graveyard that's very much shaped this book. It's called the Cemetery of the Companionless. That's how I would translate it. People who don't have a companion, people who don't have anyone in life. And I became very drawn to this place. Years and years ago, I started doing research. And the reason why you have to do research is because there's no information whatsoever there are no tombstones, no marble tombstones, no visitors, nothing. There's just wooden placards with numbers scribbled on them. And when the numbers disappear under the you know, rain or snow, everything disappears. You have no way of knowing who's buried there. And then you realize, of course, that the people who are taken there have been shunned, rejected by their families, by their communities. There are many people who have died of AIDS-related illnesses especially in 1980s and 90s, because of the stigma of, of HIV, they have been buried there, almost dumped there. There are people who come from LGBTQ plus communities, they have been rejected and buried there. There are some sex workers there buried, there are abundant babies, suicides, and also a growing number of refugees. Um, so it's a very sad and strange place where an Afghan refugee might be buried next to a Kurdish sex worker or an abandoned baby. And I think my instinct as a writer was to try to to reverse the process because it's a place where human beings are turned into numbers. I want to take one of those numbers and gave that number a story, you know, try to rehumanize and reverse the process. 
Elif, could you tell us a bit about your writing process more generally and your routine? Is it right that you, you listen to heavy metal on repeat and that you hate silence? <laughs> that, that is true. I, I don't like silence at all. And I feel very nervous if I'm in an extremely you know, quiet and tidy and neat place. Um, I just feel very awkward. I feel like I don't... <laughs> yeah, I, I just want to leave that place. So... Um, maybe also because I lived so many years in Istanbul for, for, for so long and I love the sounds of the city. Istanbul is a very noisy city, you know, one of the noisiest across the world. And where I lived in particular was even, uh, there was more noise during nighttime than during the day. And I would, I like that, you know, I would open the windows and listen to all the swearing and shouting and yelling, this anger, restlessness of the city. But with regards to heavy metal, I've been, a, I think, a metal head or a heavy metal fan since my early youth. People find it odd that a middle-aged Turkish mother might be listening to heavy metal, but I've always loved that type of music, especially sub-genres, you know, of heavy metal, like progressive, symphonic, folk, uh, Viking, metalcore. I, I love, I, you know, I love its high energy uh, and I can listen to the same song on repeat 70, 80 times and that really, really helps me to concentrate. That's amazing and definitely a first for the podcast. Um, and in terms of the routine, do you write within certain hours um, and do you work consistently over a period until you get it finished or do you kind of work in fits and starts? Yeah, I think there's no such thing as a, you know, exact, precise schedule. Um, and I'm always amazed when I hear some authors, uh, it's usually male authors of a certain age who are very fond of a very precise schedule. They know every day when to start, when to go out for a walk and come back. Um, but I think for all the rest of us, it's you juggling, you know, um, as parents, as people who do many things, you try to f create, carve out a zone, a time, for yourself and people like Toni Morrison they have left uh, I think a big impact on me she she was a single mom she was an editor and I've always you know as a novelist as a public intellectual she's someone I, I, I always respected a lot and and she, in one of her essays she describes how sometimes she writes during the day and during the night and I would say my process is very similar as well what I do make sure of, however, is that I, every day I read. So it doesn't mean that every day I write, but every day I make sure I, I read, whether it's in the morning, during the, during the afternoon, and I take notes. Um, so it, it really depends, my working hours really depend on, on, the, on the flow of the day. But all I can tell you is I have a pendulum. When I'm inside a novel, that really becomes almost the center of my, of my life. You know, that really becomes, everything is shaped uh, flows around around the story and when the novel is over when I hand it to my editor I think the pendulum swings to the other end and I try to do other things just learn other things like learn how to bake bread listen to the universe so I don't immediately start a new novel as soon as I've finished one I try to listen to what the universe is telling me could we come back to this idea you touched on earlier about the, the two ways of writing a novel, so the engineering approach versus the kind of intuition approach? Because this is something that, that comes up repeatedly on the podcast, and we always ask novelists about it. And as you say, there do seem to be a, a complete variance of approaches um, from people who work out the, 
the plot fully to those who who plunge in. Um, have you always done that, or have you ever kind of toyed with other methods and other other ways of doing it? And how did you how did you kind of come to work in that very intuition led way? I have always done that because maybe I'm. It's also my personality, you know. I. I like to listen to my intuition. I like to listen to my own emotions. I like to be in touch with emotions. However, there's also a part of me that is more cerebral and maybe that's the part that comes from, you know, um, academia or years of experience in academia, maybe gave me a sense of discipline that I otherwise lacked. Um, for me to be able to follow my intuition, I really need to know the ground first. So I, I can fly, but first I need to feel the solid ground beneath my feet. And that means you need to, there's a long process of preparation, you know, getting ready, taking notes. I read everything and anything I can find on this subject. And sometimes like with the island of missing trees, you read about butterflies and about, you know, bees and figs and different types of trees. Every single detail, if it's historical fiction, what would they wear? You have to immerse yourself in a lot of research. But once that is over, I think then you fly, you take off. How long in sort of terms of months is the research process versus the writing process? It really depends. Um, sometimes research actually takes much longer than we realise. Like with this book, I have been thinking about Cyprus, taking notes about Cyprus, listening but not quite knowing one day it would turn into a novel. So there isn't a precise beginning actually with research. But if I may put it this way, I think we have to be learners in life, you know? Writers need to be, of course, good readers, but also good listeners. Just, just keep curiosity alive, almost a childish curiosity. Um, just say, why is it like that? You know, where does this name come from? What is this street named after so-and-so? What's the story behind it? And in a place like Istanbul, where there's a lot of urban amnesia, you know, you can pass by, a, 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 you know, an old building. There's no placard. It's just abundant, dilapidated. What happened? What happened to the family who was living there? What happened on the streets? You have no way of knowing. So you have to start digging yourself as a writer. Um, you have to, yeah, excavate uh, in, into this, that cultural heritage. Uh, all I'm saying is curiosity is a big, big part of this and, and be open to learning from multiple disciplines. Sometimes when people say to me, um, you know, I don't read fiction, so much is happening in the world. My wife reads fiction. I read politics, history, philosophy. I feel sad because I think inside fiction there is everything. There is history, there is philosophy, there is psychology and politics. But most importantly, I think we should read across the board, fiction and non-fiction, East and West. So if we always read the same type of books, actually we're not learning, we're not opening ourselves to learning from others. That's why I like eclectic reading lists. And what is the editing process like with your books? Do you try and file a, a kind of polished draft before anyone sees it? Or is there a lot of back and forth? And how has that developed as your career has progressed? E editing is a big, big part of this. And sometimes, you know, when we talk about creative writing, we tend to think of it as, you know, adding a layer upon layer every day. People say, how many words have you written today? But nobody asks, how many words have you deleted today? Have you erased today? But that too is part of the process. 
So it's not like every day you add five pages, 20,000 words, whatever. And there are, there are moments when you stop and you take out chunks of your writing, you let go. And I think that is the hardest bit about the creative um, writing process, letting go. Because you've put so much effort and faith and love, you believed in those pages, but now they don't work. So editing, destroying what you have written, not only constructing, but sometimes destroying too, is, is part of the process. And I think also I have learned over the years that there are times when you feel anxious, lots of self-doubt, and there are times when you feel like, okay, this is working, this is going well. That too, you know, the highs and lows is too, I think, a part and parcel of the writing journey. How is your experience of writing non-fiction compared with writing fiction? You've published The Happiness of Blonde People in 2011 and How to Stay Sane in an Age of Division in 2020. Do you have a medium that you prefer writing in or that you find easier to write? Uh, for me, fiction will always be the heart, you know, at the centre. I, I like non-fiction as well, especially at certain stages in your life, like manifestos, when you have something special to say, um, and, and I think there are, there are things I want to share with, it, with readers via a different medium. So I'm open to the idea of nonfiction essays, thinking about maybe the theory, the craft, maybe not theory, but craft of writing, not only the art. I, I like thinking about literary criticism um, or, or, you know, ideas. There's a part of me that really enjoys that. But at the end of the day, as I said, it all goes back to the world of fiction. So as a, as a friend to my fiction, I like uh, my, my own nonfiction, but not, um, not at the heart, not at the centre. So it's a rule of the podcast that we always ask about money and people's writing lives and how the, the two have interacted. So be as, be as candid or as guarded as, as you want. But for yourself, as you built your career and you had this, you were in academia and then, and then writing professionally, how have you made it work financially and, and how did that, that side develop? For a very long time it was very difficult and I think that was one of the reasons why I stayed in academia. Of course the main reason was I, I really enjoyed uh, learning and discovering but there are times when academia can feel repetitive um, and the reason why I stayed for so long, one of the reasons was because financially I could not make a living just out of writing fiction. That was impossible, unthinkable. It accumulated. So for me, uh, sometimes, you know, people look at the book and they think, oh, if it's successful, they think it was always so. But I think it's such a gradual process, you know, bit by bit, book by book, chapter by chapter. That's how I experienced it. So it didn't really happen with one book or with one um, title. Um, but but over the years, I, I would say it's an accumulation. So for many years, I could not earn a li you know make a living out of out of my my writing. But over the years, slowly slowly it grew, and then there came a moment when I left academia, and now I solely earn from fiction. How have prizes played a role in that? You've um, quipped in the past that authors that don't care about prizes are sort of deluding themselves. You know, I wouldn't, I'm sorry, but I wouldn't believe anyone who says I don't care about whether my books are being read 
or, or you know liked by readers of course we care and i think we should be honestly talk about this which doesn't mean you write in order because you dream of a prize of course not you write because you believe in what you're doing you write because you love the art of storytelling for sure but it is it can be a very good thing for an author uh, maybe sometimes like a morale boost and if i may add this people think only young writers need this kind of boost i think writers in all age groups in all stages of their life because of these doubts and anxieties and you know depressions that we are there are valleys of depression um, mountains of anxiety that we all have to traverse when we are writing a novel and because it's such a solitary task you have no idea if anyone is going to connect with what you're doing but you have to have that faith so for weeks for months sometimes for years you're in that solitary world we don't do teamwork and you have to have faith in your novel and when the book is published if someone writes you a letter and says you know i read your book and it meant so much to me it touched something in my soul it touched a you know a chord in my soul that is precious um, and in that regard i think that kind of recognition that comes from prizes can be uh, can make authors and does make authors happy um, that's why i'm not criticizing prizes but i wish there were more prizes in a much more diverse way um, and also bringing on board writers who come from disadvantaged backgrounds, from minority backgrounds, whose voices are not heard enough in the publishing world. I think there are lots of inequalities in the publishing world that we need to be aware of. Is it right that you also write lyrics and particularly lyrics for rock bands? Uh, it's, uh, I, I wish I could say, you know, it's something I am, I keep doing, but I've you know, written a few song lyrics in the past, but that's about it. Uh, and I and I love it. I love song lyrics. You know, it's um, yeah for me. It's incredibly important. If I want to connect with a song, the lyrics are, are the main thing. Even even with heavy metal. Even with heavy metal, yes, <laughs> the lyrics matter. <laughs> um, we're coming towards the end of our time, so um, just a final question from me. Um, what's next? Are you are you working on another novel already, or are you giving it a bit of a, a bit of a break before you dive back in again? Yeah, I think right now I'm reading and listening, um, just thinking. I'm in that stage when I'm yeah, just just thinking. Brilliant. Well, look, Elif, thank you for being a fantastic guest on Always Take Notes, and wishing you all the best with your work going forward. This was such a pleasure for me. You know, thank you so much. That was the Always Take Notes interview with Elif Shafak. She's on Twitter at Elif underscore Shafak. That's spelled S-A-F-A-K in the Turkish manner. Her latest book is The Island of Missing Trees, which was published in 2021 by Penguin. A message from our sponsor, Vitsu, Melvin's story. We love, love, love our Vitsu shelving. Build quality and ease of assembly is amazing, but it was your service that made the whole process such a joy. So said Melvin from Sydney in this heartfelt message to his Vitsu planner Sophie in London. Love is a word heard a lot at Vitsu. Other verbs just don't seem to cut it. As with any customer, Sophie considered every detail, so Melvin's bookshelves were perfect for his needs. Passionate about good service, she communicates with all her customers directly wherever they are in the world. Whether in person or on the other side of the globe, 
Vitsu's planners hold your hand throughout the process, time and again proving that long-distance relationships really do work. Every interaction is handled with love from Vitsu. Vitsu's 606 Universal Shelving System is a modular, adaptable kit of parts. It can provide the perfect home for your books and even the desk from which to write one. Visit vitsu.com, that's V-I-T-S-O-E dot com, or request a free brochure via email at vitsu.com by quoting ATN 606. Vitsu, makers of long-living furniture by Dieter Rams. Hello, it's us again. Rachel, what was your takeaway from the interview with Elif? When we spoke to Elif, she was sat in front of the most amazing wall of books. Um, and I liked that she mentioned in the interview her uh, her method of reading very widely while she's sort of collecting ideas for her novels. And I think the fruits of that approach are really evident in The Island of Missing Trees, which references you know, a huge range of sort of mythical uh, folklore, history, everything. So um yeah, I uh, I enjoyed picking her brains and she was a, a long muted guest on the show. So it was great. What about you? My my abiding memory, I hate to say, is, is the mortification of, of vanishing in the middle of the conversation as my internet connection uh, <laughs> collapsed. But both um, Rachel and and Elif herself seemed to take this completely in, in their stride and seemed to be having having a very nice time when I when I finally emerged some minutes later. <laughs> so um, it, it definitely, yeah, definitely I'm was striking out on my own, Simon. I, don't I know to tell you it was testing test, Rachel's new solo project um it was yeah testing the the edges of our technical envelope but she was she was extremely charming and as as Rachel alluded to she's someone we've wanted to have on the show for a while a huge name and also the fact that she's had these battles with um the, the authorities and with suppression of her work in Turkey I also thought was was very impressive and I suppose too the fact that this multilingual approach which as with other writers, as with Nabokov, I always find that the fact that if someone can write fiction in a second or even a third language, it's a remarkable achievement. So, yeah, from my perspective, really great to have her on the show. Uh, Rachel, what have what have you been up to as we welcome in 2022? Well, we've both had a little break over Christmas, which was very nice and much needed. Um, I've just been doing lots of reading. I've just finished a book review of a book that's come out uh, this month called School for Good Mothers. So that will be coming out in the next week or so. Um, beyond that, I can't think of anything. How about you? <laughs> uh, I also had some time off over Christmas, which was um, really good and, and required. I've been um, picking things up at the beginning of the year, just trying to wrap up uh, this book proposal I'm working on and then moving forward with magazine stuff. And then the usual kind of freelancer January admin of getting my taxes done and things like that. Um, so yeah, look and looking forward to the new year and, and all the great guests that we've got coming up on the podcast. This has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikum. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin. Our graphic design is by James Edgar and our score is by Jess Danheiser. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes, on Twitter at Take Notes Always. If you'd like to support us on our crowdfunding page on Patreon, we're under Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with us via our website, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye.